You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Thursday, March 9th's reading of the Christian Science Monitor Daily. My name is Shari Mukundan. Today, I'll be reading premium stories from Wednesday, March 8th, and following up with miscellaneous articles. Today's premium stories on Ukraine's front, grit, gratitude, and hope for West's weapons. Talk radio, a new battleground for Latino voters. Creed Three is a hymn to redefine black masculinity. It's below zero. The bird feeder is empty. What to do? Today's intro by Sarah Miller-Yana, America's bureau chief. Reporting on the fight for women's rights. Spanish feminism was one of the first stories I covered for the Monitor as a foreign reporter. I will never forget what one leader told me then, 20 years ago, that while most Western women were gaining ground in the women's liberation movement, Spanish women were living under dictatorship, so they were in overdrive and, in her view, had sprinted ahead of their peers. I returned to that thought when in my small world I was seeing my friends from home start to have babies and leave careers, while the Spanish friends I was making, including my future husband, were not dreaming of anything but a two-career household. Were Spanish women more feminist? As a foreign correspondent, you do tend to notice the differences between your own culture and that of other places first. And the Monitor has reported on the many gains for women globally, from Universal Preschool in France, where I was a Paris-based correspondent, my husband and I were happy to participants, to protections for murdered and missing indigenous women in Canada, to protest against femicides in Latin America. But having had the privilege of interviewing women in over 40 countries throughout my career, I have also started to more profoundly understand how much common ground we share, even as we live under vastly different systems. That was clear covering the fallout from the Me Too movement around the world in 2017 and 2018, and hard-fought legal achievements can be quickly lost at any time for anyone. That was never clearer to me than last year, when I was the lead reporter for a piece based on the U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade on the history of global feminist movements and reproductive rights. On this International Women's Day, the protests taking place in repressive regimes around the globe might seem far away and foreign to most, but women today fighting to defy a dress code to speak their minds, or to protest a war, are essentially fighting for the same things all women want. Equality, justice, freedom, and safety in every sense. These are the shared values we aim to express in our monitor coverage. On Ukraine's front, grit, gratitude, and hope for West's weapons. What does it take to win a war? In a tour of Ukraine's eastern front after a year of conflict, Fighters say they still have determination and hope what they need is more and better weapons. By Scott Peterson, staff writer, the Donbass, Ukraine. Amid the ruins of a roadside restaurant, once used as a base by Russian paratroopers, and now strewn with torn uniforms and empty combat ration packets, certain truths about the war are evident to the battle-hardened Ukrainian sergeant. Stepping triumphantly through the rubble, Sergeant Yuri Yunko Cherkanov, enthuses about the two American-supplied HIMARS rockets that killed an estimated 
20 to 30 elite Russian soldiers here on the northeast outskirts of Kherson, on the eve of Russia's humiliating retreat last November from the southern city. But even as he voices optimism that Ukraine will ultimately prevail, Sergeant Cherkinov acknowledges that his troops have sustained substantial losses and had been exhausted by a war now grinding into its second year. And he readily admits, as both sides prepare spring offensives, Ukraine's eventual victory depends on the continued flow of Western weapons. In visits to multiple points along Ukraine's 600-mile eastern and southern front with Russia, from snow-encrusted trenches to frigid artillery and tank positions that rely on captured Russian hardware and ordnance, the optimism, the exhaustion, and the urgent need for the West's more advanced weaponry are spoken of over and over. If not for the U.S., we would not be here now, says Sergeant Cherkinov, wearing a green hat and red beard to ward off the cold and a blue and yellow Ukrainian trident tattooed on the left side of his neck to signify his loyalty. I am so tired. Everyone is so tired, he says of his last eight months in the trenches. He's been concussed and carries pieces of shrapnel in his body. He echoes voices heard elsewhere along the front. Europe's longest and most active since World War II, when he says Russian military weakness demonstrated in the past year has provided Ukrainians with battlefield confidence. Such weakness resulted, for example, in sweeping Ukrainian counteroffensives last fall that recaptured swaths of northeast Kharkiv region and liberated Kyrgyzstan. The message here is consistent. There is gratitude for $105 billion in U.S. weaponry and aid, granted or pledged, along with some $40 billion more from European allies. But to advance, Ukraine needs more main battle tanks, artillery systems, and ammunition. And to advance faster, to end the war sooner and save lives, the view, holds, view here holds, requires even faster deliveries. We are still enthusiastic. Tell President Joe Biden that we're standing for every human being, says Sergeant Cherkinov framing the conflict as Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky often does as a fight for freedom and democracy against out-of-date imperial authoritarianism. The only thing that worries us is receiving the tanks, artillery, and long-range shells in the time we need it. That timing and the issue of quality versus quantity are on the mind of one Ukrainian tank commander on the southeastern Donbass line. Falling snow piles up on his two T-64 BV tanks, which left trails of crushed branches as they backed into forested hiding places, safe from Russian drones. One is under repair, and the commander, who gives the name Yegor, jokes that 80% of any tanker's life is spent keeping his armored beast alive. While these tanks are updated versions of a 1960s Soviet design, they still lack many capabilities of the Western tanks that Ukraine is seeking. This is the same as comparing a Soviet-era 1970s Zugli car with a Mercedes S-Class 2021, says Yegor. With the technology that Western tanks have, I am sure that the level of success eliminating the enemy will be up to 90%. He recalls the lopsided tank battles of the 1991 Gulf War, during which American and British tanks easily destroyed hundreds of Iraqi tanks, most of them T-72s, acquired from the former Soviet Union. This is all the math you have to think about, he says. These Russian tanks are not made for quality. 
the Soviet Union and Russia think more about quantity. As snow gathers on his clothes and his fingers turn purple with cold, Yegor speaks about the sacrifices of Ukrainian tankers and about fighting with one spirit against a foreign invader. I don't speak to my family about the war. War is not something you can be proud of. We're doing the job we have to because we're fighting for our own survival, he says. If we have all the Western weapons, at least in the numbers that Ukraine requested, then we will finish this quite soon, Yegor says. If we have more, this will be even faster. Feeding a campfire they built on frozen ground some 40 miles east of Yegor's unit, members of the 1st Artillery Battery of Ukraine's 59th Brigade wait for targets in the early morning sun, quaffing Red Bull and playing a popular combat video game on their phones. The game draws players from around the world, and sometimes they're randomly paired on a virtual team with an actual Russian soldier, and keep striking at each other online, even when ostensible teammates. Other times there's laughter when Ukrainian kills a Russian rival on a, a Russian on a rival team. The real war is only a few yards away, where this unit's captured Russian 152mm cannon, acquired with ten other Russian guns early in the invasion near Kherson and dubbed Revenge, waits to be dragged into position through icy ruts. It is a pleasure for us to kick the Russians with Russian weapons, says Ivan Moros, adding dried branches to the fire. After a year of fighting, the trajectory is clear, says Nikita Belinsky, the rat-a-tat-tat of video game gun battle coming from his phone. It was not Ukrainian strength that surprised us, but Russian weakness, he says. Suddenly, information for a target comes in, and the men mount up quickly for the ride to an open field where the gun is set up for a target 14.8 kilometers, 9.25 miles, away toward Donetsk, which has been controlled by Russian-backed separatists since 2014. The unit commander is Oleksandr, whose call sign is Kirik, a cigar-smoking joker with a few gold teeth and a growing tick-tock following. He paints shells with messages for the Sign My Rocket crowdfunding website to raise donations for everything from drones to medical supplies. The more weapons we receive from the West, the more lives we can save, he says. I don't even need a new gun, but I need shells to augment captured Russian stockpiles that are being quickly depleted. Kirit calculates that his team members had fired, have fired 3,000 shells from this cannon in the eight months he has commanded it. The record was 98 in a single day against 30 targets in the fight for Kyrgyzstan. I love my trophy gun, he says. I can hit a mosquito 21 kilometers. I've been offered better, but why take it? Why did the stupid Russians bring this gun here so we can kill their own people? And they keep giving us ammo, says Kurik of the captured ordinance. Do you know how many Russians we've killed with their own guns? Zigzag trenches dug along Ukraine's southern front area of Druzba are immaculately cut, packed with freshly trodden snow, and marked by trees and branches, smashed by daily exchanges with fire from Russian troops. It's a grim existence that smells of soil and late winter cold. A soldier who gives the name Mikola dries his boots behind a blanket in a trench. His heater is fashioned from strips of cardboard rolled into a tin can and filled with wax. Last night there was shelling all night, says Mikola, who has been here for three and a half months. He says a rotation of Russian troops or a fresh ammunition delivery triggers an increase in attacks from Russian trenches, just 1,200 uh, 1, yards away. 
from the Ukrainian infantrymen here. Russia's invasion is reduced to a fundamental determination to persevere, no matter the cost along the 30 kilometers of front that their unit controls. Mortars, tanks, everything that Russians have in war, they use here, says Andriy Wolf Vovok, whose sharp middle-aged eyes peer unblinking from his trench. He tenses instinctively at the sound of a launched Russian mortar, and his eyes dart up until it is clear that it will land elsewhere. Of course, I'm confident because I'm on my own land, protecting my motherland, says the railway repair worker. We know that when an enemy comes to our land, we need to eliminate them. The Ukrainians only return fire if Russian forces advance and expose themselves, says a local commander called Vladislav. This line has not moved in more than five months, but firefights are frequent. They have more people. They have more guns, bullets, and shells. So we can't go forward, says Mr. Vladislav. We need to wait. We need to exhaust them. Then we can walk across. Some 45 miles northeast of those trenches, carefully hidden beneath white camouflage netting, strung up in trees between snow-covered sunflower fields, the Ukrainian BM-21 multiple rocket launcher is fully loaded with 40 rockets. The firing team stands beside a deep pit bunker where a fireplace has been dug into the dirt wall. There is a constant risk of Russian drones and concern that ammunition stores might not be replenished in time for heavy spring fighting. The U.S. alone has sent 50,000 of the 122 millimeter rockets for this type of grad launcher. There is never too much ammunition, says the unit leader, who gives the name Andri. We need more. We always need more. A firing order comes to hit a moving Russian infantry target, and the netting is pulled back, the truck driven quickly into an open position. It fires four rockets at the target, this time about seven miles away, in the direction of Donetsk. Even before the truck reverses back into hiding, an incoming shell strikes the next field. In the next 20 minutes, Russian artillery rounds fly toward targets in a nearby village. The whistle of shells cause a reaction among the soldiers who anxiously gather closer to the entrance of their bunker. Commander Yuri, who wears a skull patch on his uniform, jokes, that's the Russians inviting us to send more rockets. Tucked away in a cold pine forest on the northern fringes, fringes of the Donbass front toward Crimina is a company of Ukrainian tanks waiting for orders to redeploy, their numbers swollen by 16 captured Russian tanks. The trophies are T-72 and T-80 tanks, among the best in Russia's arsenal. Indeed, of the Ukrainian company's nine fully operational tanks, seven are Russian. We don't have the capacity to absorb all of these, and they aren't all usable, says Vladimir, who commands three tanks. We would like more to push Russian troops all out. We need weapons, weapons, and more weapons. Of course, we are pleased and surprised to have all these, muses Maxim, the company's chief mechanic, snow crunching underfoot as he moves from one tank to another. It has its good side, but the bad side is it puts a lot of pressure to get trophy tanks working. For Dennis, a bearded tank driver with black padded headgear, an abiding memory of the battlefield and of the poor state of the Russian invasion force came in December near Kremina. Dennis says it would be a big mistake to underestimate the enemy, but he also describes how his tank lost its way and rolled directly into a Russian position. As the Ukrainian tank backed away, 
the crew was surprised to hear the sound of rifle rounds bouncing off their armored turret. They saw one soldier, who appeared to them to be a mercenary from the Kremlin-backed Wagner group, emptying one magazine of bullets after another, pointlessly at the tank. They also saw Russian troops running away and then falling one by one. They were being shot by their own guys for retreating, calls Dennis, still shocked. And the Wagner fighter? We killed him. Alexander Nasilenko supported reporting for this story. Talk Radio, a new battleground for Latino voters. In the battle for Latino politic political loyalties, liberals are trying to catch up with conservatives in using talk radio to influence voters and to counter what they call a problematic rise in misinformation. By Simon Montlake, staff writer, Miami. Buenos dias, Americanos! Nelson Rubio leans into the microphone. It's 6 a.m., and the sun has yet to rise on this metro area of 6 million. But Mr. Rubio, wearing a blue shirt under a gray check jacket with a red pocket square, is already raring to go. Over the next three hours, as Miami's highways start to congeal with commuters, the right-wing radio host will sound off on everything from the fitful election in Washington of new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, there is no Congress, it's not getting done, to the Biden administration's regional diplomacy. These are people who negotiate with dictators. Mr. Rubio's show used to be one of the signature program on Miami's radio Mambi, a popular station and enduring symbol of identity among Cuban exiles. Mambi has been broadcasting here since the days of the Reagan administration and was for years a fixture for Republican candidates seeking Cuban-American votes in South Florida. But last summer, Mambi was sold to an unlikely buyer, Latino Media Network, LMN, a startup run by two Democratic operatives with financing from mega-donor George Soros. The sale set off a political firestorm in Florida, where Republicans warned of left-wing censorship and propaganda. And it wasn't just Mambi that changed hands. In all, LMN bought 18 Spanish-language stations in Florida, New York, Illinois, Arizona, California, Texas, and Nevada. The $60 million takeover, and the reactions it has sparked, is another flashpoint in the national battle to win over Latino voters, a fast-growing demographic that has long leaned Democratic, but has lately grown more receptive to Republicans. So far, most Spanish-language radio in the U.S., has been focused on music and entertainment, not news or commentary, which in the eyes of many makes it an untapped and lucrative means of political persuasion. Both sides are trying to capitalize on an audience that's growing in numbers and being decisive on candidates' future, says Christian Overt, a strategic advisor to the Biden campaign in Florida in 2020. Buying these radio stations is both capitalism and politics, says Mr. Overt. It's the new electorate, but it's also a business enterprise, he says. In November's midterms, Governor Ron DeSantis led Florida's GOP to victory with majority statewide support from Latinos and flipped Miami-Dade County, where more than half the population is foreign-born. Some Florida Democrats, though certainly not all, blame these defeats in part on misinformation aired on Mambi and other Spanish-language stations. They have welcomed LMN's takeover as a way to fight back. Miami is to Hispanic media 
what New York is to English media. It's the epicenter, says Joe Garcia, a former Democratic U.S. representative for Miami-Dade. What you want to do is have balanced coverage and not be called a Marxist. LMN's co-founders Stephanie Valencia and Jess Morales Raquetto says they want radio stations to reflect the diverse culture of Latinos. In a statement, they said they would uphold the long-standing spirit of liberty at Mambi, but noted that they believed in a free press which values verifiable facts and balance. All points of view will be welcomed and encouraged to debate in the free marketplace of ideas. Mr. Rubio wasn't convinced. Last July, he and his two colleagues walked out at Mambi after a tense first meeting with its new owners. He says that Ms. Valencia, who worked in the Obama White House, had previously accused the station of spreading misinformation, which he denies that he personally did. There was no room for people to think like us in that new company, he says. But Mr. Rubio was soon back on the airwaves. In politics, as in physics, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. His new employer, Americano Media, is another media startup in Miami that has already raised $18 million to create Spanish-language news content for radio and TV, this time from a conservative standpoint with a laser focus on a national audience. Hispanics are conservative. We just don't admit this, says Ivan Garcia Hidalgo, founder and CEO of Americano Media, whose desk has a plastic model of a semi-automatic rifle in red, white, blue, among other objects. A former Trump surrogate, Mr. Garcia Hidalgo, says he first pitched the concept of a Spanish-language version of Fox News to national GOP officials and party donors. He pointed out that former President Donald Trump increased his share of Latino votes nationally in 2020, despite four years of mostly negative coverage of his presidency in Spanish-language media. Imagine if we actually had an outlet, a media outlet, that he, Mr. Trump, could come on and we could get the message out. And everyone said, wow, you know what? It's never been done. It's never going to happen. Forget about it, he says. Eventually, Mr. Garcia Hildago found individual patriots who shared his politics and wanted to invest in a Hispanic network. Last March, Mercano began broadcasting on satellite radio before adding a Miami AM station that now airs Mr. Rubio's morning show, going head-to-head with his former station, Mumbi. But winning in Miami isn't Americano's mission. It's in talks with radio stations across the country to carry out its right-leaning daily news and opinion so it could become a force multiplier for Republicans in the next presidential election. In 2024, we're going to be everywhere. We're going to be making sure that the message gets to everyone in the Spanish language, he says iHeartRadio has agreed to carry Americano's content on AM stations in Tampa, Orlando, and Jacksonville and stream it digitally on its app. The iHeart announcement, expected later this week, comes as Americano celebrates its first year in business. It also continues to build out its TV operation. From a refitted commercial TV studio in Miami, the company's plan is to move from a test phase to streaming live news digitally, eventually adding bureaus in Washington and Las Vegas. While TV isn't the top source of news for most Americans, radio continues to hold its own and is even bigger for Latinos than for the general population, according to industry surveys and ratings. On the AM dial, English-language talk radio dominates, and at the top 10 national talkers, of the top 10 national talkers, eight are steadfast conservatives, 
led by Fox's Sean Hannity, with a weekly audience of over 16 million. For years, Democrats have tried and failed to counter this right-wing radio tilt, most notably with the ill-fated Air America Radio in the early 2000s, leading some to conclude that liberal talkers simply can't compete. Most Spanish-language radio stations in the U.S. carry music, religious, or sports programming, not news and opinion. 2019 study found only 31 news stations in Spanish, of which a third were in Florida. The news stations had seen declining revenues. Media executives say the ethnic and political diversity of the Latino population makes it harder to build a national audience for a talk show, which is why there is no Rush Limbaugh in Spanish. Station owners also prefer music to talk that might upset some listeners, says Fernando Espuelas, who hosted a popular left-leaning national talk show that was canceled by Univision in 2015. For talk radio to be successful, it has to have some zip to it. It has to have a point of view, he says, all of which makes Miami's vibrant radio culture unusual. People still like to hear radio jocks, says Alejandro Alvarado, a Mexican-born professor who directs the Spanish-language journalism program at Florida International University. They want to have conversations with these hosts. It's something that's rooted in Miami. Most of these conversations are among diehard conservatives, including Cubans and Venezuelans, who despise the left in their native countries and apply the same lens to U.S. politics. Giancarlo Sopo, a GOP media consultant, grew up in Miami hearing Radio Mambi's jingle. As a child, he recalls his father, a Cuban-born politician, taking him to the station when he was appearing on air. Cuba had a very strong radio culture, and the exiles brought it with them to South Florida, he says. But he's perplexed that Democrats think that purchasing this or any other Spanish-language radio station can reverse an electoral slide. For one thing, the largest swing to Republican among Latinos in Florida has come not from voters who currently get their news from Hispanic radio, but from those who speak mostly English and skew younger. Democrats buying Mambi has symbolic importance, he says. I don't know that it's going to move the needle for them in South Florida. Yet despite skepticism about radio's influence, Democratic pollster Ferdinand Amandi agrees that the amount of misinformation spread by Hispanic stations is problematic and should be better regulated. A 2021 report by local nonprofits found that Mr. Rubio and other Mambi hosts had repeatedly spread false or misleading claims about voter fraud in the 2020 election and about the January 6th riot by Trump supporters at the U.S. Capitol. A radio monitoring project by the Miami Herald, ahead of the 2022 midterms, which Professor Alvarado helped run, found examples of misinformation on Mambi and other stations. But it also found Spanish-language news coverage, including correction of false claims by partisan actors. So far, Mambi hasn't changed its stripes. Under a leasing agreement with the former owners, the station has kept on the same management, and its conservative hosts are speaking their minds, even criticizing Mr. Soros and their new owners on air. Still, Nincosa Perez Castellon, a 26-year-old host on Mambi, who declined to join Mr. Rubio's walkout last year, recently resigned. They're trying to determine what is right and what is wrong, she says, denying that her show spreads falsehoods. Mr. Garcia Hidalgo says that his new conservative-leaning network wants to air a range of views, including from Democrats, and let the audience decide, 
We're not in a convincing business. Political parties do that. That's their job. We're going to present both sides. I think that's fair to Hispanics. This also makes business sense, says Jose Aditis Muno, a former spokesperson for the Democratic National Committee who co-hosts a nightly talk show on Americano. He's happy to go for bat for Democrats on conservative media, whether in English or Spanish. We need to be in the places where there is debate, he says. He says that Mr. Garcia Hidalgo, whom he knows personally, also recognizes that hard-right opinion may hold limited appeal for America's diverse Latino population outside Miami. Mr. Garcia Hidalgo says his network first has to succeed commercially if it's to move the needle on Hispanic votes at election time. It's about ratings, he says. You have to get the message across. Creed 3 is a hint to redefine black masculinity. Creed 3 is more than a movie about two black men tirelessly fighting each other. It offers a deeper and deeply needed view of manhood. By Ken Macon, contributor. The sweet science of boxing speaks to a fighter's finesse and fortitude. Succinctly, it is the art of hitting and not getting hit. As I watched the third Creed movie last weekend, which stars Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors, I was also reminded of the sweet science of black masculinity. Rolling with the punches describes the experience of black men in America well. We have shadowboxed with stereotypes, whether they were caricatures of brutality or notions that were unworthy and unwilling fathers. Those shadows end up being the stuff of nightmares, whether it's the specter of gun violence or glimpses from a police camera. Some believe that beauty is in the struggle. Some, some believe that beauty is in the struggle, but perseverance is what compels me. Creed three masterfully toes the line between softness and savagery, trauma and triumph. This dance began before the movie's premiere. Mr. Jordan and Mr. Majors pulled off a compelling press run, capped with an introspective New York Times interview. What resonated more than the dialogue which covered ambition and chemistry, was the lead photo. A stoic Mr. Majors has his arms wrapped around Mr. Jordan in a way that wasn't intimidating nor intimating. It was the picture of masculinity, even as some people might have bristled at the notion of black men sharing such an intimate moment. It reminded me of a photo of Mr. Jordan and the late Black Panther lead Chadwick Boseman. Mr. Jordan, who played Eric Killmonger, has his arm wrapped tightly around Mr. Bozeman, the once and forever King Chala, who has both of his hands gripped around Mr. Jordan's arm. After Mr. Bozeman's death, the image became even more poignant. Mr. Majors is no stranger to cover photo controversy. A series of February 2023 covers from Ebony magazine showing him lounging amid a symphony of pink, at times surrounded by rose petals. After a social media storm, the publication's editorial staff felt compelled to write an op-ed rebuking the idea that the shoot was an effort to emasculate black men. The conversation captured the essence of toxic masculinity, which is often discussed from the perception of patriarchy, not from how it pigeonholes men. It is fitting that this conversation occurred during the run of the third Creed movie, because there's another famous boxing trilogy which became a war of words and stereotype, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. Three fights became the stuff of legend. Now we think of Mr. Ali as an activist, with good reason, and yet he degraded Mr. Frazier with ugly taunts, their long-standing angst, 
is a reminder of how trauma can transcend from the physical to the metaphysical. In that way, Creed 3 is more than a movie about two black men tirelessly fighting each other. It is a movie about love lost, about idols becoming rivals. It is a movie about abuse and therapy, how nature and nurture can be the thinnest lines between victory and defeat. During one of the climactic points of the movie, one of the lead characters refuted the need to heal, which reminded me of the beginning of Father Time by Kendrick Lamar. Real Negro need no therapy. That song is a commentary about harsh patriarchy. All through the track, Mr. Lamar laments daddy issues that taught him being sensitive never helped. Of course, there's always room to grow and heal. It's why boxers take a break in between rounds to assess damage and adjust strategy. Therapy is a part of the sweet science, and the proverbial fighter refuses it at his or her peril. This attention to details, what makes the third Creed film arguably the best of the Rocky series, while Mr. Major's role as an antagonist in Mr. Jordan's Adonis Creed fuels our hero, it is the latter's relationship with the women in his life that give him depth. There are couples therapy sessions with co-star Tessa Thompson, the motherly endurance of Felicia Rashad, and Mila Davis-Kent as the scene-stealing daughter. It's a reminder that masculinity can choose partnership over patriarchy. Strength can be found in precision and in timing, specifically taking the time to love. Some of the deepest cuts aren't made with fists. They are made in the resolution to be better. I'm flashing back to a commonplace practice of mine, preparing fruit for my oldest son. He loves strawberries, and my sweet science is taking the red orbs out of the plastic pack, washing off a knife, slicing off the floral tops. I'll pick him up from school, and his question will always be the same. What do you have for me? It's not an inquiry of greed, but one of expectation, of provision. His smile affirms the masculinity of a caring father. It is a gentle reminder that there are few things with the tensile strength of love, and that neither stereotype nor systemic racism can deter black manhood. It's below zero. The bird feeder is empty. What to do? Surviving winter can feel like a solitary affair, but our essayist finds delight in maintaining his bird feeder. On one frigid day, the chore proves unexpectedly life-giving. By Robert Close, contributor. Yesterday, as the temperature bottomed out at 19 below zero here in my corner of Maine, as I stood at the kitchen window, peering out at the frozen landscape, I watched as myriad birds flitted about the feeder. There was only about an inch of black oil sunflower seed remaining in the long plastic tube, and it was this scarcity that seemed to incite them to a frenzy of competition for the last grains. Chickadees, nuthatches, juncos, house finches, goldfinches, and cardinals. As hardy as these species are, I still shivered for them as I watched their desperate bids for food in the biting cold. My dilemma. Do I go out there to replenish the feeder or not? In addition to the cold, the snow was knee-deep. But I was snug inside with a cup of steaming tea in my hands. I was mindful of guidance from those in the know that once one starts to feed birds, one must keep it up, especially during the winter when wild food is hard to come by. In essence, a feeder is kind of compact. Yes, I'll feed, feed you if you simply continue to put your beauty and your antics on display. 
When it comes to beauty, there are some stunning specimens, even at this latitude. I've already mentioned the cardinal, strikingly red against the snow. Another bird, sporting a bright primary color, is the blue jay. Then there's the rose-breasted grosbeak, with its scarlet bib, and the black-and-white checkerboard of the downy woodpecker, the buff-and-yellow of the cedar waxwing, and the subtler hues of the bluebird, said to be migrating farther north as global warming proceeds. As for antics, they are abundant as well. Other birds seem to be aware of the cardinal's majesty and unfussingly defer to it when it alights. The blue jay, on the other hand, blows into town like a wild west gunslinger, entering a saloon. Everybody scatters. The chickadee, Maine's state bird, is both acrobatic and tame. With patience, it can be trained to eat from one's hand. What could be more enchanting than that? Which brings me back to my dilemma. To venture out or not. My hand was forced when the bluebird, flying from the feeder, banged into the window. I pressed my nose to the glass and saw it there in the snow, the frigid wind fluffing its feathers as it sat motionless. That was it, then. I commenced the main cold-weather ritual of donning parka, scarf, knit hat, boots, and gloves. I opened the door, and the air, sharp as flint, took my breath away. Pushing my way through the snow, I tripped over the drifts, all the while asking myself, how do they do it? How do birds and animals survive this cold? The bluebird was still in the ground. I carefully picked it up and cupped it in my hands, blowing warm air on it while the wind howled about us. Finally, the creature gave a vigorous flutter. I opened my hands, and off it flew. Grabbing the feeder, I retraced my steps to the mother load of seed kept under wraps on the back porch. I filled it to brimming, drew in a breath, and set it out again. Through the set out again through the drifts, through the wind, tripping only once this time, as I held the feeder aloft like a beacon of hope and promise. And then, small wonder, just as I was reaching up to hook the feeder in place, a chickadee landed on my shoulder, and it emitted a chitter of anticipation. I was so taken by this that I froze in mid-reach, willing to endure the cold for the sake of protracting this moment. I hung the feeder, and the chickadee hopped onto it to stake its claim. Stepping back, I watched as other birds arrived. Cold or no cold, they had a job to do, as did I. A Sure Basis for Workplace Equality New laws requiring wage disclosure are meant to promote equality between male and female employees. Yet a faster route might lie in fostering qualities from both genders. By the Monitor's Editorial Board In a few weeks, Japanese companies will start disclosing their wage and salary levels under a new law designed to reduce a gender pay gap of 22%. The law is one of several taking effect this year around the globe in response to a stall in achieving pay equality. Yet, despite the slow progress, a mental and cultural shift may be happening anyway, hastening equality in the workplace more than shaming or cajoling might. In much of the corporate world, leadership has become less about biological sex and more about a blending of qualities associated with masculine or feminine. The shift presumes all individuals have a capacity to express such qualities. It is vital to balance masculine and feminine leadership styles within organizations, notes Christophe Martineau, a Barcelona-based leadership consultant with Seeding Energy. The idea of feminine leadership is not intended to create a binary opposition between men and women, 
and to recognize that masculine and feminine qualities are not a matter of biology. That idea is embedded in an observation in The Economist's latest glass ceiling index, an annual survey of women in the workplace published Monday. It found that where fathers take parental leave, mothers tend to return to the labor market, female empowerment is higher, and the earnings gap between men and women is lower. Such role reversals were hard to imagine in even the most progressive societies a generation ago. Now they yield quantifiable benefits, according to a survey of 163 multinational companies over a 13-year period. Harvard Business Review found that firms with more women in senior positions are more profitable, more socially responsible, and provide safer, higher quality customer experiences. A study by the business schools at Columbia, Stanford, and Duke universities found that when women are in power, there is no longer a semantic trade-off between likability and strong leadership, shattering the myth that women can't be both capable and kind. Breaking down gender norms, the study observed, increased women's confidence and advancement into positions of power. It is unclear if laws compelling wage transparency will result in more equitable work employment between men and women. That uplift already rests on active recognition that talent and worth are neither defined nor limited by physical identity. A discovery bigger than archaeology. The Middle East is full of groundbreaking archaeological discoveries. What intrigued our correspondent wasn't what this team uncovered, but who uncovered it. By Taylor Luck, special correspondent. Our recent cover story was three years in the making. I first heard of what is now known as Aten, Egypt's own Pompeii, back in December 2019. I was speaking with Zahi Hawass, the famous former head of Egyptian antiquities, on the sidelines of Egypt's World Youth Forum. It was mostly a courtesy conversation. I was interested to hear about the latest work in Egyptian archaeology. But for my 16 years in the Middle East, I'm always a bit wary of archaeologists who sell their site as the most important ever, or findings that change our understanding of a civilization. But it was not what Dr. Hawass had discovered that interested me. At that point, his team had not yet broken ground. What interested me was the team itself. For the first time, Dr. Hawass was leading an all-Egyptian team where every role, from conservationist to ceramicist to dig leader to digger to surveyor, was filled by an Egyptian national. For more than a century, Western archaeologists have been the ones making discoveries in Egypt, the Levant, and Mesopotamia. Even in modern joint Arab international digs, I would watch as foreign archaeologists almost always got the credit, while their local partners would be mainly relegated to the periphery. One major reason for this gap is institutional and financial. Western archaeologists have big-name universities and funds behind them, while Egyptian and other Arab archaeologists often have to pay for their own tools. The fact that Egyptians were now setting out to uncover more about their own archaeological heritage jumped out to me as an important story to tell. Unfortunately, the pandemic prevented me from joining Dr. Hawass and his team when they started excavations in 2020. In 2021, they announced the discovery of Aten, an intact, abandoned city from Egypt's Middle Kingdom. In less than two years, my potential story had a happy ending. But I still wanted to learn more about these archaeologists and tell their story 
not just Athens. When I finally arrived at their excavation sites in November 2022, workers were uncovering new artifacts as I stood there. A sandal here, a jewelry workshop there. I met passionate young Egyptian specialists like Asama Ibrahim and Siham El-Bershawi, who were uncovering, preserving, and presenting the daily lives of their forebears, work that they are now using toward their PhD studies. These young Egyptian archaeologists expressed hope of one day becoming university professors to pass on their knowledge and experience to the next generation of Egyptians. What I was witnessing was more than Egyptians gaining a renewed sense of dignity and reclaiming a past that was often told by others. It was a story of the many future Athens to be discovered by the all-Egyptian teams and archaeologists being inspired by this dig. In the end, these young Egyptians' greatest discovery had been their own ability to lead the field of Egyptology. Through their perspective and independence, they have brought the civilization of their ancestors to life. South Korea's Olive Branch to Japan The president's plan to compensate wartime Korean victims starts with a recognition that any redress by Japan must be voluntary. By the Monitor's editorial board. On Monday, the president of South Korea, Yoon Suk-yeol, offered a plan to end a cycle of revenge between his country and Japan. Ties between the two neighbors have declined in recent years over how to resolve issues left over from Japan's 1910 to 1945 occupation of the Korean Peninsula. At the heart of Mr. Yoon's plan is an intriguing idea that any apology or reparations from Japan must be voluntary. As a former prosecutor, Mr. Yoon probably knows an apology is a dish best served with warm sincerity. His plan indirectly acknowledges that Japan did offer massive compensation to South Korea in 1965 for its past rule and to formalize post-war relations. It also seems to recognize the broad apologies offered by the Japanese emperor and government in the 1990s. What's lingered since then has been political demands within South Korea for direct Japanese apologies and compensation to the remaining Koreans who labored in colonial-era war factories or military brothels. Mr. Yoon's plan leaves the door open for that still to happen, but he indicated in a March 1st speech that Japan deserves recognition for its post-war progress. Japan has transformed from a militarist aggressor of the past into a partner that shares the same universal values with us, he said. The two nations, both democracies, also face rising military threats from North Korea and China and a need to form a better three-way alliance with the United States. One of the plan's concrete steps calls for Korean companies that benefited from Japan's post-war compensation to make voluntary donations to a public foundation that will assist 15 wartime victims. In return, officials in Tokyo suggest Japanese companies might contribute to a foundation that would pay for future-oriented activities aimed at Korean youth. Japan's officials also hint they may reassert the deep remorse and heartfelt apology given to South Korea's more than a quarter century ago. In recent decades, South Korean politics has thrived off anti-Japanese sentiments. Mr. Yoon, who came to power last May, brought in a different sensibility. Already, his plan has seen results. Since the plan was unveiled, the two governments have begun to back off trade threats made in the recent past. Japan might invite Mr. Yoon for a visit to Tokyo 
and to the G7 summit in Hiroshima in May. The two governments have worked closely for months to reach this moment. Mr. Yoon's plan may fail in the heat of Korean politics, but at the least he's shown that real reconciliation relies on voluntary action, often unilaterally and from the heart. For the sake of our people, the vicious circle should be broken, said South Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin. I hope this will become a historic window of opportunity for us to go beyond antagonism and conflict. Venezuela's latent civic reserves. An autocrat's harsh misrule and isolation have only strengthened a popular hunger for justice and equality by the Monitor's editorial board. Ten years ago, Venezuela had the fourth largest economy in Latin America, anchored by the largest oil reserves in the world. Since then, its economy has collapsed by more than 86%. More than one in five Venezuelans have left, forced by economic hardship, persecution, or criminal violence to seek freedom and opportunity elsewhere. The exodus is an off-sided measure of the misrule of socialist autocrat President Nicolás Maduro. Yet the flip side of that picture reveals another story. Nearly 80% of Venezuelans have stayed put, reflecting in part an expectation among many that justice and equality will return. The Venezuelan case is an example of a country where democratic forces refuse to die, Amherst College political scientist Javier Corrales said in an America's Society Council of the Americas podcast. And this has meant that autocracy hasn't really consolidated. There's a story here of hope that is the resilience of democratic forces in Venezuela. The resiliency has lasted a long time. In 2013, Mr. Maduro inherited the rule of the late Hugo Chavez, as well as an economy kept aloft with petrodollars. A crash in oil prices then led him down a harsh, autocratic path. A 2018 presidential election resulted in an awkward political cleft. Mr. Maduro claimed victory. Parliament declared his rival, Juan Guaido, as president, a move backed by nearly 60 countries and followed with tougher economic sanctions. Last year, the winds shifted. A new leftist government in neighboring Colombia espoused engagement with Venezuela over isolation. The war in Ukraine set the West in search of new petroleum. International recognition of Mr. Guaido has fallen off. The Biden administration enabled Chevron to resume limited oil production in Venezuela. Talks hosted by Mexico between the government and opposition parties restarted last fall to prepare for elections next year. Backed by his patrons, Cuba, Russia, and China, Mr. Maduro now seems to be enjoying a new lease. But autocrats have a way of revealing their weaknesses. In January, he pitched new legislation effectively criminalizing civil society organizations and further curbing freedom of speech and assembly. It isn't hard to see why. The hope of elections has added to popular demands for change. The Venezuelan Observatory of Social Conflicts, a human rights watchdog, counted 1,262 protests during the first 42 days of 2023, a 136% increase over the same period a year ago. Teachers and trade unionists have turned out in swelling protests. This time we've lost our fear, one protester told, told Bloomberg. Such sentiments are echoed in a new book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, by Filipino-American journalist and Nobel laureate Maria Reza. I refuse to live in a world like this, she wrote. I demand better. We deserve better. Mr. Maduro may be emerging from international isolation, 
but his people demand a just and equitable society. By that measure, he has already been handed a defeat. Building Blocks for Compassionate Cities by the Monitor's Editorial Board year after becoming the first woman and person of color to be elected to lead the city of Boston, Mayor Michelle Wu stood on the steps of a vacated church in February to fulfill a promise to reinvent how the city cares for its residents. The building is part of a $67 million project to lift up low-income neighborhoods. 17 unused buildings and empty lots will be remade into more than 800 income-restricted units for rent or ownership, combined with artist studios, shop fronts, health clinics, and after-school centers. The project is one of the more innovative ideas playing out across the United States as municipal planners and private developers grapple with how to ensure cities provide adequate housing for both existing and new residents. In many cities that require redressing historical harms caused by eminent domain or anti-blight laws that allowed city officials to appropriate homes or overrun whole neighborhoods, it also means adjusting to economic changes, such as a boom in tech industries that can leave cities like Boston too expensive for people in service jobs or low-salaried professions like teaching. We can't grow sustainably unless our residents are secure in their homes, Ms. Wu said in her first State of the City address in January. In some cities like Washington, minimum wage workers must clock 80 hours per week to afford a one-bedroom unit. The 2022 Greater Boston Housing Report card found that Boston's rental and homeowner vacancies were among the lowest in the country. Ms. Wu's strategy centers on replacing the city's planning and development board and banning the use of anti-blight laws that enable city officials to seize buildings they decided were dilapidated or otherwise undesirable. In its place, the mayor's proposed a new board under her office to create, as she said at city council meeting, climate resilience and healthy connected communities. Developers, citizens, and city officials are struggling to agree on what her goals will require. That may be more unifying than it sounds. Removing obstacles to adequate housing will require broad and democratic discussion, one marked by humility and openness. Mayor Wu's project to renovate and renew 17 sites across Boston's diverse neighborhoods is a start toward refashioning a city with compassion for all. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Science Monitor Daily. My name is Sherry McCundon. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.